Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach, California. Whether you are listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. Pastor Lowe, and um, I've been a part of this congregation for, um, since it started, actually. And so I don't get the chance to come and speak with you all the time. And so this is a special occasion for me, and I plan on taking full advantage of it. So we're going to go two hours today. If that's a, no, I'm not going to go two hours. I would get in a lot of trouble. Uh, but um, I do plan on spending a lot of time with you th- this morning because of, uh, of what a treat it is. And as I've been preparing this week, um, this whole topic of why Jesus hates religion has been uh, a compelling one for me. And I think it's a, an excellent conversation to have because it challenged us to think about, well, what is it about Christianity and religion and, and how do I fit into that? And does Jesus really hate religion? So as I wrestled with that this week, I, I stumbled upon some things that were very eye-opening for me. And my hope is that um, we get a chance to go over many of those. Because at the core, Jesus hates religion for, for several factors that we're talking about. But for this morning, we're going to focus on how he hates the exclusivity of religion. And how religion, over time, tends to always build barriers. And it always brings about boundaries. Now, it brings about boundaries in the way people dress. It brings about boundaries in the way people behave. It, it also brings about boundaries in, in, in as far as performance. Am I good enough? Um, it, have I done enough? Um, but it also brings about boundaries in, in, in the way we speak, in our language. Now, let me, let me, let me share with you what, what I mean by that. If I came up here today and I said, you know, the Lord spoke to me and revealed to me his perfect will. There'd be people in the audience who are like, oh, that's so good. I'm so glad for you. People that are visiting for the first time be like, he did what? He spoke. How did, what, like, audibly, like, what happened? Or if I came up and I said, you know, this morning it's been so great, I just really felt like Jesus has lifted me up on eagle's wings. I mean, that, who's, that's crazy talk to a lot of people. Most of the people that we work with and we talk to would never understand if I came up and said, I was so glad that I'm washed by the blood of the Lamb. It, it would just create an instant, uncomfortable, they, they would just look at you and go, what is that? just creepy. So just the way we talk can creep people out and cause division. And Jesus knew about knew that same type of dynamic because his culture that he was, he was raised in and that he ministered in was very exclusive. The Jewish culture had many ways to keep people in various levels of, of involvement. Um, even the very temple in Jerusalem, for those of you guys who have been there, they have an outer area where pretty much everyone can come. But if you want to get in the inner courts, you have to have certain criteria. Oh, and if you want to get into the holy place, I'm sorry. That is restricted to the very few. And if you want to go to the high holies, yeah, get in line. There's not any, hardly anybody ever gets to go in there. And so just even the way that the temple was set up, it was set up to kind of keep people in certain class systems. There was a hierarchy. Even if you were born, if you were born as a Jew, you would have different, different roles and responsibilities and, and, and have different authority than if you were born as a, as a Samaritan or a Gentile. You wouldn't have access to certain things. If you were a woman you would not have the rights that a man would have. And then there was all sorts of social hierarchies based on what your behavior was. If you, had, if you were a notorious sinner, you wouldn't be able to be involved in anything. If you had an illness, you'd be kept outside because you were deemed unclean. And it was this concept of, of the religious leaders saying, we want to keep everything kind of instruction, instructor, structure, and, and a lot of people were left out in the cold. So Jesus knew all about this idea of being excluded. And he had some very strong, strong instruction about what he felt about that. So today I want to talk about what God's word says about being inclusive and how we can truly be the church that God taught about, how we can truly be the church that Jesus lived for, and how we can truly be the church that he died for. That's our goal for this morning. Would you pray with me as we jump into God's word? Heavenly Father, we, Lord, I just ask that your spirit kind of breaks us down this morning, that, that wherever we're at, we kind of can leave the, the cares of our world um, 
aside for a moment, just so we can kind of hear from your word, so that we can be comforted um, by you and, and, and the truth that we'll hear this morning. God, allow our time to be a time that's not just entertaining, but that it truly changes the way that we live, the way that we think, the way that we act. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I had to rack my brain a little bit about, you know, when was a time that I felt excluded? And quickly the floodgate opened because it happens quite frequently for me. Um, but one that came up was, was a recent one. It even actually happened on this campus. It was, about, uh, it was in the spring. And in the spring, we host a, a conference called Catalyst. And many of you might have heard of that conference. But it's where prominent church leaders, prominent musicians, and, and other people who have a, a very faith-centered lifestyle are doing some amazing things to transform our culture. And so about 3,600 people flooded onto this campus. For three days, it was taken over by this whole conference. So my wife, Christine, and I were able to go together this year. And so the first day, you're all kind of revved up. You're like, this is so amazing. There's so many amazing teachers. And then by the second day, you realize, like, when they give you a 15-minute break, all 3,600 of those people are doing the same thing. They're going to the bathroom or they're getting us something to drink. And so very quickly, it becomes frustrating. Like, are you kidding me? i got to wait in line for a half hour just to get a cup of coffee or a soda? And so in my, in my uh, resourcefulness, I was thinking to myself, I go, you know, I've been a pastor here for about five years. I know where things are. Like, I know where, where like, the hidden places are that nobody knows about. And, and as a pastor, I can kind of get there. So I said, Christine, let's just jump out of line, and I know of a place we can go. So we went over and jumped in an elevator that not everyone had access to. We took the elevator up to the second floor, and sure enough, we walk in. It's like, oh, there's nobody here. There's no crowds. It's like our own little oasis. They've got sodas and drinks on ice over here. They've got snacks. And immediately I start thinking to myself, I'm like, man, my wife is really lucky that she has me. Absolutely. Because without me, we'd be still stuck in that line. We'd be, out, we'd be down there waiting for our 15 minutes just to use the restroom. And I'm thinking, I'm going, man, this is really good. It, it, it's, it's good to, to be on a pastoral staff. And so I walk in, and we're about ready to get something to drink, and a voice comes from across the room, excuse me, sir, excuse me, this is, yeah, this is off limits. And I'm like, oh, I know, I know, but I'm a, I'm a pastor on staff here. And she goes, yeah, yeah, it's off limits. It's for the, it's for the Catalyst crew and the, and the speakers for Catalyst. And immediately my heart just kind of shrunk because I realized, She's really not going to let me stay here. And on top of that, all, everything I've been building up was how, how cool I was and how privileged my wife was to have with me. And now all of a sudden I put her in a bitter, embarrassing situation and we literally got kicked out of a room of a church that I pastor at. I got excluded from my own church and I felt very um, hurt by that. And uh, now mind you, I put myself in that situation. But I think all of us with a little bit of stretching can think of a time where we got left out. Think of that party that everyone got invited to but you didn't. Think about that tryout that didn't quite go your way, and I'm sorry, you're not going to be putting on the uniform this year. Think about that wedding that you just didn't make the invite list to. It's, it happens all the time in our culture. But it's one of those things where Jesus wanted to make a stand about his thoughts on being exclusive and his thoughts on being inclusive. So early on in Jesus' ministry, um, we're going to be talking out of Luke 4, verse 14. Early on in his ministry, um, he is stepping into all these different opportunities to speak and teach and preach and, and really shift people's way of thinking. And so in Luke 4, verse 14, it reads, Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Soon he became well-known throughout the surrounding country. He taught in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he, re- he went, as usual, to the synagogue on Sabbath and stood up to read the Scriptures. The scroll containing the messages of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to him, and he unrolled the scroll to a place where it says, 
Now, before I read what it says, he's basically going to church like we all have this morning. And somebody hands him a scroll, and he turns to a place in Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was a prophet. He lived about 750 years before Jesus. And Isaiah was, was a lot of his ministry was about talk, telling people and warning people about what God was going to do and giving, him, giving people a glimpse as to what, what God was going to do when he sent his Messiah, when he sent to set things right. And so Jesus is reading a piece of literature that's 750 years old. That'd be like me reading something right here that was in the 13th century. So it happened a long time ago. So Jesus is unrolling the scroll. And you've got to remember, in that day, there was no Old Testament, New Testament. There was just the Old Testament because the New Testament was happening on the fly. And so he's reading out of this Old Testament, unravels the scroll, and this is what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has appointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the downtrodden will be freed from their oppressors, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled the scroll back up, handed it to the attendant, and sat down. Everyone in the synagogue, their eyes are intently looking at him, staring at him. Then he said, This scripture has come true today before your very eyes. That was a bombshell he dropped on him. He's basically saying, all that prophecy about the Messiah, all the promises about what God's going to do when he comes back, it's happening right now. I am the one who's going to usher that in. Now you can imagine the response of the people. He's proclaiming something so profound, and he's literally declaring that the good news will be preached to the poor. Now, the poor is anyone who's lacking, whether it be food or shelter, whether it be relationships, whether it be any type of of core need as humans. He's saying the good news, the poor, everything will be given to you that you're needing. The captives will be released. This idea of captives is is a POW or somebody who's been imprisoned by by either in war or or even in spiritual war, of somebody whose past decision has haunted them and kept them held captive. He's saying you're going to be released. The blind will see. Both physically, as we see in Jesus' ministry, he, he um, on multiple occasions, healed people who were blind. But also spiritual blindness. When you think of people who walk around and they're looking through life through such narrow parameters saying, this is my current situation. He's saying, no, I'm going to open your eyes up to what God sees in things. I'm going to open, open your eyes up to a kingdom type of vision. The downtrodden will be freed from oppressors. This downtrodden is this idea of people who are controlled by some sort of oppressive force. It's the sin. It's oppressive sin that we can't shake, we can't break. He's saying any of those who are oppressed by sin, you will be released. And then he lastly says, in the time of the Lord's favor has come. This idea of the Lord's favor is this Jewish tradition of of jubilee. See, the Jewish culture had this this practice of, of every 49 years returning to everyone what was lost. In that time, just like in this time, you'd get yourself into financial issues and you might have to sell off a piece of your property to pay for that. Or you might find yourself in in huge peril and realize that the only thing you can offer is yourself and you would enlist into slavery to work for somebody to to settle that debt. But the Jewish culture, every 49 years, God had put in a system that says, at the end of that 49 years, everything gets restored. Whatever it is that you lost, it gets returned to you. Whatever you've done as far as issue yourself as a slave, you you get your freedom back. Every 49 years, God would level the playing field and he would make everyone equal making it everyone united, and there would not be any exclusion. This would have been a powerful speech that he's giving, and it would have rattled people and made, them, made their, their, their minds spin. But their reaction is in verse 22. All who were there spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words that fell from his lips. How can this be, they asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? 
So they're into it. They're thinking, yeah, who doesn't want to see people who are captives freed? Who doesn't want to see people have their sight returned to them? Who doesn't want to see people have their property restored to them? This is great. Isn't Jesus an amazing speaker? I mean, we hear that often in our culture. You come out and somebody, wow, that was an excellent message that was delivered today. That was just so profound and so inspiring. So Jesus says, as he sits back and is watching all this, he's, he, he starts, to, starts to lay another level of understanding. So Jesus gets back and starts to talk to him in verse 25, and he uses this as an example to what he wants them to truly understand. Certainly there were many widows in Israel who needed Elijah's help. But when there was no rain for three and a half years and hunger stalked the land, Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a widow in Zarephath, a foreigner in the land of Sidon. Or think of the prophet Elisha, who healed Naaman, a Syrian, rather than the many lepers in Israel who needed, who needed help. Now what he's saying right now is he's driving home this point of, of what he's going to do as far as his ministry. Now, the, the argument that he's making is Elijah could have gone to any number of widows. They didn't. God didn't send them to any of the widows in Israel. He sent them to a Gentile woman. Elisha could have healed any of the lepers in the various towns that he went to in Israel. But he wasn't sent to them. He was sent to Naaman, who was a Gentile. And he's making the statement that there are no more exclusions. The message that I'm bringing to you today, the powerful fulfillment of prophecy out of Isaiah, is not just for the Israelites. It's not just for the Jewish people. It's for everyone. Well, they had a much different reaction on that one. Verse 28, that same crowd that was so enamored with Jesus' words, when they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and took him to the edge of the hill which the city was built. They intended to push him over the cliff, but he slipped away through the crowd and left them. What would cause a crowd to have such a violent response to just a couple historical lessons that Jesus was pointing out? Well, the underwriting current of what Jesus was doing was that he was changing their very lifestyle. What he just shared with them is, no longer are you more elite than the Gentile. No longer are you more important than the Samaritan. No longer is it about you. This blessing extends to everyone. And when their status, when their comfort level, when their way of thinking was threatened, their immediate response was to get aggressive and to throw Jesus off a cliff. I don't want to be on the side of that equation. I don't want to be the guy that, came, that was known as, oh, wow, you really threw him pretty good on that one, you know, got rid of Jesus in a heartbeat there. But the crowd was violent, and quite frankly, their reaction kind of scares me. Am, am, am I prone to having that same sort of, I, I like my comfortable message of, of my Christianity, but as soon as I hear something that's a little bit outside of the box, I, I get a little aggressive. I, don't, I push back a little bit. And the fact of the matter, the more I thought about it, I, I do that all the time. That's my human nature. That's your human nature. That's all of us. All of us fight to preserve what is comfortable. All of us fight for, to preserve what, is, what we believe and what we want out of, our, out of our faith. The mistake would be to think, that, oh, we would never do that. We're so much more advanced than the people sitting in that synagogue that day. We're so much more evolved than, than those people. They, we have a greater understanding. But that would be the mistake, because that's us falling into that same pattern. And it's not just us. Even the disciples, the very men that walked with Jesus for the duration of his ministry, fell into the same traps 
In Acts 15, we see one of the early Christian councils of these leaders coming back together and saying, okay, we've been out at this for a while. There's certain things that we need to talk about. You guys are, are converting all these Gentiles, but you're not circumcising them. You guys need to circumcise the Gentiles because that's how we do things. And it became this clashing point where these leaders are saying, no, 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 no. We're not going to heap on a bunch of expectations. We're just going to welcome them as they are. And luckily, in that, in that early council, Peter and Paul and James all had unanimous um, voice of saying, well, no, we're not going to make people do anything religious for the sake of having a relationship with God. So it's not just us. It's something that creeps in all the time. And the ultimate danger is that if we don't have an awareness of that creeping in, we might find ourselves actually fighting against what Jesus is doing. We might find ourselves being in opposition of what the work that Jesus is trying to do through us as a church. And that can be a very frustrating and tiring way to use your time. So we have to be aware of what's going on, and we have to be careful that we don't become more like that mob that becomes offended at Jesus' teachings and the way that he wants us to live our lives, but we become more humble in saying, you know what, I, I need to listen, I need to embrace what truth is being told to me right now. So for me, I, need to, I want to make sure that I'm clear on this topic. And so we're going to spend a little time talking about another parable that Jesus expands on this idea of, I, let me help you understand what, what inclusive looks like. And this story that Jesus is talking, this parable that he's talking about is in Luke 14, and the setting of this is, uh, is important to note because Jesus has been invited to a, uh, a very prominent dinner. He's been invited to the head of the Pharisee's home for a banquet. And the head of the Pharisee at that day would have been the top dog, the, the major influencer of the day. He would have been uh, a person who was of great respect, and he was inviting all his friends, including Jesus, to come over and have dinner with him. So on the way to this house, Jesus is walking through the town, and, and there's big crowds that are assembling, and he's walking through the crowds, and there's even a man who has a, a major, obvious skin condition. And Jesus uses this man as, as an opportunity for him to show his power, actually heals the man on the way to dinner, and makes his way up to the Pharisee's house. So he is sitting at dinner with a bunch of Pharisees, and there's this opportunity for him to talk about what the kingdom of God's going to look like. So in Luke 14, Jesus told them this illustration. A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. When all was ready, he sent his servant around to notify the guests that it was time for them to come. But they all began making excuses. One said he just bought a field and wanted to inspect it, so he asked to be excused. Another said he had just bought five pair of oxen and wanted to try them out. Another had been married, so he couldn't come. The servant returned and told his master what he had said, and his master was angry. Okay, so you see there's this big party about to happen. The master sends out a lot of invitations, and based on the, the, the passage, we can assume that the, a lot of invitations came back, saying, okay, we plan on being at your party. So the, the party goers have already RSVP'd, not unlike any party that we would throw. We wouldn't throw out 400 invitations and then make food for 400. We would wait to see how many people said they could come, and then we would, we would organize the banquet. And so many of these people have already RSVP'd, and then they started backing out. I mean, imagine an important event that you guys might have thrown in the past, whether it be a, a landmark birthday, whether it be a big event through a church or through, um, through the, a city organization. Maybe it, was even, um, maybe it was even a wedding that you threw. And you were counting on 100 people that said, yes, I can't wait to join you on this, this great event. And then all of a sudden, the day of the wedding comes, and one by one, you realize that they didn't show. How insulting how rude, how absolutely shattering that event would be to have nobody come who had said they're going to be there. 
So you can understand why the master was mad. Now, Jesus is painting a very great picture about how this banquet and this original guest list is God inviting his people, the people of Israel, to come and be a part of this great banquet. And right there in the Pharisee's house, he's saying, and you guys aren't showing up. The banquet is here. I'm standing right in front of you. The party is now, and you guys aren't showing up. He was very bold to make that type of statement in front of these people. Verse 21, it goes on, it says, The master was angry and said, Go quickly into the streets and alleys and city and invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. After the servant had done this, he reported, There's still room for more. So the master said, Go into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. For none of those I invited first will get to even smallest taste of what I've prepared for them. So the servant goes out two more times. The master's saying, you know what, if they're not going to attend, go find the people who will come to this party. I want you to go find the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. I want you to go into the streets. I want you to go down the roads. I want to go out into the countryside. I even want you to look behind the hedges and go and bring anybody who will come to this banquet that I've prepared. Because the master wants a full house. The master wants everyone who, who, who's willing to enjoy this great banquet. And interestingly enough, the people that they went after are the people that would never have thought they would even be able to attend. I mean, think about it. You're, you're just a common person, you know, living in the countryside, possibly living outside, homeless. I'm never going to be invited to the banquet. I'm never going to be invited to the master's house. You've got to be somebody. You've got to kind of earn your way up the social ladder to get invited to that place. I don't have the right clothes. I can't go. But to be invited would send a huge message saying, no, you are welcome to come. You need to be here. There is a space for you. Come and join us. It would have been the outcasts, the abandoned, living in hedges. It would have been the, the dregs of society that were invited to this party. Jesus is making himself very clear. He's saying this banquet, it's going to be attended by the people that you least expect. It's going to be attended by the people who you would not think were able, nor were they welcome to come. And to tell that story, sitting amongst a bunch of Pharisees, would have shaken their cage. I mean, honestly, I don't know that I would want to go to that banquet. I mean, to me, that's like getting an invitation from Skid Row's big Thanksgiving party saying, hey, we want you to come. It's like getting invited down to the rescue mission, saying, we want to come to this party. You're going to be there with, with a couple of the people from the street, and you're going to be there with some people who have some physical issues. You're going to be there with all the poor, the lame, the, the marginalized, the people who've been living behind hedges. I mean, my first instinct is, I don't, I don't know if that's the type of party I want to go to. And that's rough for me to say as, as, a, as a, a pastor who... who is striving to, to be and represent, or be like and represent Jesus. But would I want to be at a party where there were homeless and people who were sick? I mean, at the end of the day, it's like what Ethan was saying. It's like, it's, sometimes I just want to be around people that's not difficult to be around. I don't want to be around people that takes work. I don't want to be around people who don't think like me. I don't want to be around people who don't have the same hobbies as me or the same, the same beliefs as I do. It takes so much work. And the more that I thought about it, the more that I thought about how frequently I exclude people. 
from my life. And it's not about bringing them to, to church. It's about inviting people into our lives. How often do I keep people out of my life because, you know what, there's just a lot of work. I'd rather not even invite that into my week, my daily routine. And doesn't our church mindset suggest that we adopt certain limits as to who's really welcome here? I mean, aren't there really some unspoken things of like, well, I don't know if I really want them here. I mean, are we okay with the gay couple sitting in front of us holding hands? Are we okay with the, the, the pregnant teenager who wants to be involved in our youth program? Are we okay with the family member who continually hurts us, continually betrays us, continually shows us how much they don't deserve to be a part of something that I enjoy? Are we okay with the drug addict sitting next to us who's shaky and smells like cigarette smoke during Sunday service? Are we okay with the felon who just got out of prison and is trying to turn their life around? Are we okay if they're a sex offender? Are we okay with the homeless person who lives down on PCH, who hasn't bathed in three months, who clearly doesn't have a home to live in? Are we okay if they walk right through that door right now and sat down next to us because they wanted to get out of the cold and they heard us singing and felt drawn to come and worship? I mean, I think the sobering question is, who would we be willing to invite into our lives? Who would we be willing to invite into our homes? Who would we be willing to invite into this space to share Sunday morning with us? And are we actually helping Jesus in his efforts to fill the banquet? Or are we kind of keeping him under control, saying, let's not go out of our way to invite everyone, Jesus. This is actually a place that we want to kind of keep some control over. One last observation is, the servant. The servant has been kind of this constant throughout this story. And the interesting thing is the servant doesn't argue with the master. You don't hear anything like, well, master, are you sure you want to invite them? Are you, uh, do you really know what you're asking? Um, servant, uh, master, do you know that they haven't bathed in a long time and anyone that they sit next to is really going to probably fill out a, a comment card to how great your banquet was? <laughs> the servant doesn't even go to the place where he says, you know, do we really want to bring that notorious sinner? You know that gal that's over on Galilee Way? You know the things that she, do you, her, even her, really? You want to invite her in? He doesn't ask questions. The servant simply responds to what the master has told him to do. And the master has spoken. The master has spoken to the servant. He's spoken to me. And he's spoken to all of you. His message is very clear. Go make disciples. If they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Do not keep these little ones from me. Love your neighbors and care for them. He's spoken, but so many times, how, many, how much do we fight Jesus saying, ah, but I don't really want to do that um, because I've got some pretty good reasons. Uh, like, um, I, I, it's a really busy week for me, Lord, so I don't know that I can really be... Um, responding and going out and doing what you're asking. We so often fight Jesus' request to go out and bring these people to the banquet, and we hold Jesus' instructions at arm's length, saying it doesn't fit into my lifestyle. 
think a few areas that we, that we need to work on to make sure that we're not letting our human nature take control in this area. A few areas that we need to be very aware of so that we don't become like that mob in the synagogue saying, oh, those are eloquent words, but not at the expense of my comfort. Nope, nope, you can't change the way that I do things because that is just way too irresponsible, Jesus. One of the, one of the ones that I, I, I think is universal is this fear of rejection. I don't, want to go, I don't want to go ask people, because what if they say no? What if they turn me down? What if they, you know, I've already asked them three or four times. I guarantee if I go again, they're just going to say no. We start saying no for people before we even get a chance to, to actually accept our invitation. And the truth of the matter is, it's not our party. The, the servant should have no care as to whether they say yes or no, because it's not the servant's party. It's the master's party. Why do I need to care about whether somebody's turning down the master's invitation or not? They're not rejecting me. Out of Luke 10, 16, Jesus says to his disciples, anyone who accepts your message is also accepting me. And anyone who rejects you is rejecting me. And anyone who rejects me is rejecting God who sent me. We don't have to be afraid of people turning us down on the invitation. We're not being asked to throw a party to invite people to. We're being asked to invite them to the party that God's throwing. He can worry about whether their response is favorable or not. Another pitfall that we get into is a, is a lack of effort. It's that very holy excuse of, well, I'm just waiting for the Lord's direction. I don't really feel called into evangelism. And I'm going to tell you right now, you have been called and you are called, and it's not a matter of waiting. The instruction was very clear to love your neighbor. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, but love your neighbor as yourself. It's not about waiting for instruction. It's realizing the instruction has been given, and it's time for us to start acting. It's time for us to be like the servant and simply saying, okay, I'm going to go out and get him. Okay, I'm going to go out and, and let him know that the party's ready for him. And one other pitfall is this same pitfall that that synagogue mob had, which was this pursuit of comfort. I want to really put in a lot of time to make sure that my life is comfortable. I don't want the disruptions. So many people don't deserve to, to, to experience this. They've hurt us. They've betrayed me. They've done so many things that just simply has disqualified them from being a part of what I want to invite them to. And the fact of the matter is, Jesus isn't saying just tolerate the outsiders when they come in. He's not saying, hey, when, when everyone shows up to the party, I really want you to, to just you know, make them feel at home. That's not the instruction. The instruction is, I want you to go out and get the outsiders. Don't wait for them to come and stumble upon the party. They don't know that they're invited. The people out in the streets don't realize that they're invited to the banquet. They're still in the mindset of saying, I, I would never be a part of that. I would never be welcome there. I've done too many things. I mean, look at me. I'm living behind a hedge. I can't go up to the banquet. And God's saying, I need you to go out and tell every single person that you find that they are welcome to come to the banquet. But the comfort of the banquet, what if they show up? It's going to be so disruptive. It's going to be so distracting. Earlier this year, I had a chance to come to service on Sunday morning and was sitting there. And quickly on in the service, I started to recognize that somebody sitting behind us was... It was being very disruptive. 
there were a lot of inappropriate grunts and there were a lot of clapping at just rude times where you're just sitting there going, are you serious? Does this person realize that they are so out of line? So much so that everyone around us kept looking back and kind of giving them that, that eye of saying, you know, can you stop what you're doing? Don't you realize I'm trying to worship here? Don't you, don't you realize I'm trying to, to listen to the message? And it finally got to a tipping point where I was so distracted that I figured I had to do something or I would not be able to, to, to relax and enjoy the service. And so I turned around. And as soon as I turned around, I saw a man about 28 years old. And he was in his own wheelchair. And you could tell he didn't have control over his body. You could tell that he had very limited mobility. And I started to think, well, when, it, when is he grunting? He's grunting during mes- the, the message when, when the pastor makes a, a, a point. And there's a... Argh! When is he clapping? Oh, there's a point in the message and in the worship when, when the leader explains something powerful about the kingdom of God. And as I turn around, I realized, he gets it. As distracting and as disruptive and as, as completely beyond what what everyone's expected to do when they sit in the seats. He got it. He understood the good news. Because he had so much in his life that was lacking, and he clapped every time he heard the good news. He understood what it was like to be a captive. And this this message of being released from that captivity. He understood and had eyes to see things through God's lens. He understood that the time of the Lord's favor has come because so much of his life was lacking. And when he grunted and when he clapped, it was in his response knowing that there's going to be a day. There's going to be a time when everything's going to be restored. Everything's going to give back. Everything that was taken away from him, his mobility, his ability to function like everyone else, it was going to be put right. It was going to be the year of the Lord's favor. And he vocalized it in that sanctuary, in a way that nobody else, I think, understood. If I have to endure being distracted and being disrupted for the sake of seeing God work in a beautiful way, disrupt me. Because that's the type of church that I want to be about. That's the type of church that Jesus taught us to be. That's the type of church that Jesus lived for. And that's the type of church that Jesus died for. It means for me to open up my life and let people in that I normally wouldn't in order to see the beauty of how Jesus works. I'm going to work really hard at that. And I invite all of you to do the same. I invite all of you to see the life that Jesus has for you this week, the people that he has just around the fringes of your day, saying, there, there's one, there's one down in the street. There's one that's not going to come to the banquet unless you tell them. So that I can be more aware and extend the invitation so that they can enjoy the master's banquet as well. Would you pray with me? God, would you break us? Jesus, would you break us from the the mindset that that spends so much time preserving what we think we deserve, preserving the the things, the way that we want them? God, would you break us into people 
that can honestly understand what it is that you're wanting. And then just simply do it. Help us be people that go and invite people into our lives. That they can experience you. They can experience this banquet that you've prepared for us. That's who we want to be. And we desperately need you to become that. Continue to break through to us so that we can be the church that you died for us to be. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach. For more information about Mariner's, visit www.marinerschurch.org.